Well, good morning. It's good to see y'all. And I thought I would just start out by saying thank you to Red Mountain Church. The Venable family is very thankful for Red Mountain Church and for your prayers for us and for your gifts that you've given us to support our efforts to reach South Huntsville with the gospel. We have been there since January, beginning to plant a church in South Huntsville. And we have a provisional session, which is a couple of big words for just a group of men who are providing accountability and wisdom for our church plant there in South Huntsville. And we've been gathering on Sunday evenings to pray for that part of our city. And we're hoping, Lord willing, to even start a worship service this Sunday, uh, it's not this Sunday, this September in a small Lutheran church there in South Huntsville. So thank you for your prayers. And I just wanted to give a very quick thank you for your support of our efforts there in South Huntsville. I'm going to read from Acts chapter 16, verses 22 to 34. And we're beginning in the middle of the story, but I'll give you the backstory once we get into the passage. But please hear the reading of God's word from Acts 16, verses 22 to 34. And it says, The crowd joined in attacking them, And the magistrates tore the garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. And having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. And the prisoners were listening to them And suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately all the doors were opened, and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried out with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. And then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you'll be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all that were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds. And he was baptized at once, he and all his family. And then he brought them up into his house and set food before them, and he rejoiced along with his entire household that he believed in God. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, in ourselves we are ignorant about you, and ignorant about who we are, and ignorant about how to live in the world. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would teach us who you are, about who we are, and about how to live in this world, in Jesus Christ, by your Holy Spirit. Amen. It's been a rough three or four years, hasn't it? If you look at the news, and not just local news, but national news and world news, um, the world has been full of violence, these last three or four years. And before then, it was full of violence, too. 
diseases and wars and rumors of wars and indiscriminate killing. And there's no shortage of catastrophe and heartache and pain if you go to your favorite news website. And because of that, there's no more important thing that we could do is ask the question, why are we in this situation? Why is the United States in the situation that it's in? Why is the world in the situation that it's in? How did we get here? And then what hope do we have? In in the midst of the scene that we're in, if we're going to look life in the face and not turn away from all the heartache and pain in the world, what's the hope moving forward? And what God wants to tell us in Acts chapter 16 is an answer to those questions. Why is the world the way that it is? And then what, what hope do we have? What hope is there to, to, to face tomorrow in the midst of all the heartache and pain that, that we're living in right now? And I, I don't know where all of you are coming from. Some of you I know and some of you I don't. And you might be here this morning thinking, well, how can the Bible really help us with this? If I want to really understand the world and if I want to get to the bottom of the world's problems, is the Bible really relevant? Because the Bible is a very old book, at least 2,000 years old and parts of it much older than that. And some people in our culture might look at the Bible and say, the Bible is irrelevant to solving our modern problems because it's so old. And what I would say to you is that the things that people struggle with today in Birmingham, Alabama are the exact same things that people struggled with in Acts, in Philippi, in Macedonia 2,000 years ago. That the same problems with violence and disease and broken marriages and broken families and broken careers and sadness and anxiety, these these are our problems, right? These, These are the fundamental things that we face. They were the same fundamental things that people faced 2,000 years ago. And modernity, for all the the great things about living in 2022, they have not solved these problems. And they're just as bad in 2022 as they were 2,000 years ago. And so I would submit to you that, you know, as, as beneficial as science and technology might be, as beneficial as psychology and sociology might be, all these things have helpful things that we can learn from them. They can't fundamentally fix the problem that we're in. And so I would ask you, if you've never looked to the Bible before to answer these questions, to answer the most fundamental problems of of your life, what if the Bible really does have answers to these important questions? And this morning, we're in this passage, Acts chapter 16. And like I said, we jump down right in the middle of it. And some of you will remember where we are in the, the book of Acts. The book of Acts was written by a man named Luke, who also wrote the Gospel of Luke. And he's writing it for this man named Theophilus to provide an account, an accurate summary of how the Gospel began, and then how it moved from just Jesus and his disciples to a worldwide movement that touched every part of the world. Christianity began with this one man, Jesus, and his disciples, and it changed the whole world. So much so that we even measure time by when Jesus was born. How did, how did we get there? How did, how did we get from just this one man to this worldwide movement? And that's what the book of Acts is about. It's about the spread of the church. And it's not happening as a science experiment with 
perfect conditions where everything is ideal, but the book of Acts is messy, and it's how the gospel spreads in a messy world. And so Paul had made it to a town called Philippi um, in what we call modern-day Greece. And Philippi was a sizable city, and it was a city where a lot of retired military people lived because there had been a major war around Philippi. And a lot of the, the generals and the soldiers who'd participated in these battles, they had retired here in Philippi. And so Paul and Silas, and at least um, Luke was with them at this time, and maybe Timothy, they go into the city of Philippi, and they're, they're praying in the city of Philippi. And they meet a woman named Lydia while they're praying. And she's she's a, probably a wealthy businesswoman, this woman named Lydia. And she believes in the gospel. She becomes a Christian. And then, Paul, they find a woman who's a slave. At this time, having slaves in the Roman world was not uncommon. And this woman, the Bible says, was possessed by a demon. And she walked around following Paul around Philippi, saying, These men are servants of the Most High God. This is what the, the demon inside her was trying to pester and annoy Paul and his friends as they ministered around Philippi. And finally, Paul just cast the demon out of the woman, which for the woman, you might have thought was very good. And it was good of Paul to do that. But the men that owned this woman, remember she was a slave, they didn't like this, because this woman, through the demon, was making money for her owners, predicting the future. And whether she could really do that, I don't really know. But the men were nonetheless charging people who wanted to know the future, and these people were convinced that this woman possessed could predict the future. And so these men suddenly lost their source of income. Nobody wanted to come pay for a woman without a demon to predict the future because she just couldn't do it anymore or couldn't look like she did it. And so these men were angry at Paul. And they dragged them into the center of the town. And back then, the center of the town, that's where the the rulers met and it's where sort of the town court also was. So they dragged them into the center of town and they began beating them. And the men kind of uh, take advantage of some anti-Semitism that existed in Philippi. And they call them Jews. And they say, you know, Paul, he's just another Jew. And he's upsetting our town. And we should get rid of him. And so the men begin beating Paul and Silas. And they arrest them. And they throw them into jail. And we're not entirely sure why they threw just Paul and Silas into jail. Because there were other... Luke was there too, at least. But they threw just Paul and Silas into jail. And the passage says that they were thrown into the inner prison after they were beaten. And in this inner prison, you might have expected to find them just kind of moaning and complaining about what had happened to them. I don't, no one would have blamed them for that. They had been beaten to an inch of their life, put into the inner prison, their feet fastened in these stocks. And no one would have said anything if they had just been complaining about how, what had happened to them. But instead, what are they doing? What are Paul and Silas doing at midnight? In this dark prison, this is before, you know, fluorescent lighting. So when, it's, when it gets dark at night, it is dark in this prison. And they're in the deepest part of it. It says in the passage that they're singing hymns. They're praising God and singing hymns. In the dark, at midnight, bleeding with their feet in the stocks. And suddenly there's this earthquake. An earthquake caused by some force that's not natural. In the Bible, when these earthquakes come, this is the power and the force of God that causes the whole prison to shake, and it says that their chains fell off. 
Their chains fell off of them, not just for Paul and Silas, but all the prisoners. And that wakes the jailer up. There's this jailer, and he's the one who had put them into the prison. The jailer's the one that had put them not just into a part of the prison, but into the deepest part of the prison, and had put their feet in the stocks. And the prisoners had been listening to Paul and Silas sing, but not the jailer. The Philippian jailer was asleep. But this earthquake and the chains falling off, it causes the Philippian jailer to wake up. He's awake. But he's despairing. Because he sees that the chains have fallen off, and he knows that if these prisoners have escaped, it's likely that I will be put to death. Because it was normal, you were the jailer, that whatever punishment was intended for the prisoners, if they escaped, it instead would be brought on to you. And then the jailer thought, I think they were probably going to execute these Christians. The Philippian jailer thought, that's what's coming for me. They're going to take my life. And if, if death is what's coming for me, then my life no longer has any meaning or any purpose. And he, so he was despairing, and he drew his sword, and it said he was about to kill himself. And that's when Paul cries out, don't harm yourself. Don't hurt yourself, because we're here. We're still here, the Bible says. And then what happens? The amazing thing is the jailer falls down before Paul and Silas, and he says, what do I have to do to be saved? What do I have to do? The jailer had been shaken. God had shaken his whole, uh, his whole world had been shaken up, as we say. And so he falls down before Paul and Silas, and he says, what do I have to do to be saved? And Paul and Silas, it says, they, they take him and they teach him the word of God. And they tell him, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. You and your household. And the jailer believes in his household. And suddenly you find the jailer taking Paul and Silas out of the jail. Back to his house where he washes their wounds. Remember they're bleeding. They've been beaten nearly to death. The jailer wants to wash them off. To bandage them and to heal them. He feeds them. And the jailer is a new person. What an amazing story here in the book of Acts. And I want to take just a minute and ask the question, what are we supposed to see from this story? What does God want us to see about our world, about the modern world that we live in? What can we learn about it? And the first thing I want you to see is how unbelief harms our reason. Unbelief, it harms our reason. Paul cried out, don't harm yourself. This whole passage can, can be seen as the crowds and the magistrates and the Philippian jailer, and they're all just harming themselves. And one way they're harming themselves is if they're hurting their reason, their capacity to use logic. They're not thinking clearly. And that's what unbelief does to you. Look at the beginning of the passage. And as these men are dragged in to this center of the city, there's no due process going on. The magistrates don't say calmly and coolly, okay, let's line up some witnesses and find out what's going on. I mean, every parent knows when your kids get into a fight, you at least want to bother to ask, hey, uh, tell me your side of the story. Now I want to know your side of the story. Every parent can do that. You don't have to be a Christian to do that. Every parent tries to do that. But these magistrates didn't even bother to do that. They didn't bother to hear different sides of the story. 
They just automatically assumed with no, with no logic, with no reason, you know, these guys, why don't we just beat them nearly to death and throw them into the inner prison and, and, and put, put them in stocks in the prison? Unbelief, it hurts our capacity to reason. And you see this the way that Christians are treated in America. You even see this the way that Christians are treated in the world. We're a, we're a Christian. I know I'm not saying Christians are perfect. We have plenty to confess and plenty to repent from. I'm not trying to argue Christians are perfect. But Christians are treated in a way that's illogical and not reasonable. You know, the things that people say about Christians that are just slander, and as soon as you try to offer any kind of proof, as soon as you try to say, well, actually the Bible doesn't say that, you can't get that sentence out of your mouth before you're just condemned again. Because unbelief, it takes away your capacity to reason and think. Because there's something deeper going on than just oh, I don't like Christianity because I examined the facts and I came to this logical conclusion that I don't like it. People, I had the same attitude before I became a Christian. We have a predisposition to hate Christians and to hate the Jesus that died for them. Unbelief, it hurts our our ability to reason. Unbelief harms our community. Remember Paul, he's, he's crying out to the jailer, as the jailer's drawing his sword to take his own life. He says, don't harm yourself. Stop harming yourself. It wasn't just the jailer who was harming himself. Look at the way that this mob is behaving. Unbelief destroys community. Here in Philippi, it wasn't just one person who was trying to accuse Paul and Silas of destroying their city. It wasn't just different people in isolation who were throwing rocks at Paul and Silas. But the people had become united. The people had become together. Their community had become centered around hating the living God of Paul and Silas. And it was destroying their community. Look at what their community had become. This place of violence. They are tearing these men to pieces. And I don't think any of them woke up that morning and thought to themselves... This community would be better if we were just had more violence around here. Wouldn't it be great if there was just more violence in Philippi? That's what we'll do today. I don't think any of them woke up that day. But when they encountered the living God and the good news of the gospel, there was something in them that united their community against it. Unbelief destroys community. If, if, if Birmingham, if everyone in Birmingham suddenly became a Christian, and I mean a real living, breathing Christian, not just people who were claiming to be Christians, but I mean people who were doing their you know, honest best to follow Jesus, you wouldn't even need prisons in Birmingham probably, right? You probably wouldn't need um, stop signs. <laughs> Maybe we still need those. But all these things in our modern life that are built to keep violence and violent people away, if the world was influenced completely by Christianity, we wouldn't even need those things. But unbelief destroys community. And that's why our communities are plagued with violence and theft and lying and stealing and greed. Unbelief destroys community. Lastly, unbelief, it it harms joy. It takes away our joy. 
And I want to show you a picture of this. This is from a different passage. You don't have to turn there, but Romans chapter 3, it's a picture of what unbelief does to the world. This is what it says in Romans 3. There's no one who understands. Remember, unbelief hurts our ability to reason. No one understands. There's no one who seeks God. All have turned away. All alike have become worthless. There's no one who does good. Their throat's an open grave. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and wretchedness are in their paths. Unbelief harms our joy. It takes away our ability to feel connected to God and deeply connected to each other. And that's why this jailer, in a framework, in a point of view, in a worldview of unbelief, all he knew to do was to draw his sword and to take his own life. When everything that was important to that jailer was taken away from him, his career was going to be over, he thought. He wasn't going to live a comfortable life anymore, so he thought. And when that happened, he had no joy. And in his point of view, there was no reason to live anymore. And isn't that true? That despair and unbelief, it comes from feeling disconnected and being objectively disconnected from God and disconnected from his people. And that's what the world is like apart from Christ. That's what, that's what I'm like apart from Christ in the midst of despair and it gets, it gets dressed up very well with great jobs and great houses and great cars and a great education. And all that can mask for a while that, you know, yeah, I still have some joy. I don't need to believe in Christ to have joy. But the, the measure of your beliefs, they really come out when it's all taken away from you. When, when your career does fail, when, when your marriage fails... Or when um, your city or your town fails, that's when you know the measure of what you believe. And in the face of all those things, most men leave lives of quiet desperation, don't they? Um, the burden of just our unnatural self. The things that we do and think in private that no one else knows about. Um, this, it's, a, it's a heavy weight that takes our joy. And that's, that's the harm that unbelief does to us. What's the good news? What's the good news for those of us who live in the midst of unbelief? Where we see reason, it doesn't work the way that it's supposed to. Community's destroyed. And you see this in the, the covenant love that God has for the jailer. Covenant in the Bible just means a relationship. And in the Bible, before Jesus was born, a long time before Jesus was born, God made this covenant where he promised to one day send a descendant of King David who would sit on the throne of David and who would be born and die on a cross and rise from the dead. And God demonstrates this covenant love for this Philippian jailer. I love how it summarized in Romans chapter 8. This is the covenant love that God has for the Philippian jailer in Romans 8 where he says, Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is the one who died, but even more has been raised and is at the right hand of God. Listen to this. What can separate us from the love of Christ? Can affliction or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword 
All these things were more than conquerors. I'm persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of Christ Jesus. And that day, this Philippian, being thousands of miles from where Jesus lived, this Philippian jailer who had spent a life, and in that moment, the Philippian jailer had done all that he could to silence the gospel, and to squash the gospel. And he had, he had locked and chained up Paul and Silas. God, before the foundation of the world, he loved the Philippian jailer. And because God's covenant love is strong, because he loved that Philippian jailer, he, he ran after him and he found him in that prison. He, he left the 99 to go after that one sheep. And especially here this morning, if you feel like God, you're too far away from God, that God could never find you where you are, I want you to think about this Philippian jailer and think about those crowds. You know, if you, if you have made fun of Christians and Christianity without ever reading the Bible, you're a lot like the mobs here in Philippi. Or if, if your family um, or your city or your life has been harmed and, and torn apart because you just, you just don't care about the living God, don't want to follow him. You are a lot like this Philippian jailer. And this Philippian jailer, he fell down before Paul and Silas, and they didn't tell him, are you kidding me? We have, we have no good news for you. What you're going to get is the justice of God for what you've done to us and to the cause of the gospel. That's what you deserve. What did they say? Believe. Look to the Lord Jesus. Look to him. He said, don't harm yourself. Please don't harm yourself. We're all here. We're here. We haven't left. God delivered the apostles from jail back in Acts so they could testify in the temple. God had delivered Peter from jail so he could go testify to the disciples. God didn't want to deliver Paul and Silas from that jail. Because he had, they had a message for that Philippian jailer. He said, we're all here. It's a perfect picture of the gospel. When Jesus was born, when the word became flesh, it was God telling the world, I'm here. I haven't gone anywhere. When Jesus walked in a world torn apart by violence and injustice, I'm still here. When Jesus died on the cross, it was God saying, I'm here. Don't harm yourself. I'm here redeeming you. When he rose from the dead, it was God saying, I'm here. I'm still here. When he ascended into heaven and sent his spirit, what did God promise in Jesus Christ? I will never leave you nor forsake you. And that's what Paul and Silas knew in that jail. That's why they could sing praises at midnight in the dark. Because they believed that God could never leave them nor forsake them. And that's what the Philippian jailer found out that day. That despite the life he had lived, hating the living God, God was still here. He didn't have to harm himself. And this morning, especially if you're not a believer, I would urge you to see yourself in the story of this Philippian jailer. Fall down before God in your heart. Ask him to save you, to forgive you, and he will. Because he 
has promised to. And, and if you're here this morning and you are a believer, you know, the thing I would say to you is that you've been given an identity bigger than your circumstances. You've been given an identity bigger than your circumstances. I can't say it better than Paul does in 1 Corinthians. The Apostle Paul, he says, Three times I was beaten with rods. Three times I was shipwrecked. I received a stoning. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. On frequent journeys, I faced dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my own people, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers at sea, dangers among false brothers, toil and hardship. He's not done. Many sleepless nights and hunger and thirst, often without food, cold, and without clothing. You know what Paul knew in all those dangers? That nothing could separate him from the love of Christ Jesus. Sleepless nights because of a a sick child. Sleepless nights because of a career that's not going the way that you would like it to go. Or a marriage that feels overwhelming. Nothing can separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. We don't have to harm ourselves because God is here. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would lift our eyes to you and your son Jesus Christ. Help us to remember that you have given us an identity bigger than our circumstances. Keep us from unbelief that destroys community We want to be a community that's a beacon and a light and a world that feels dark. And so build up our faith, Lord, that we might sing your praises even at midnight uh, when things feel dark. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would do this for your glory and our good. Amen.